Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. From the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, I'm Marika Proctor. I'm a current MAR student in Religion and the Arts, and this is the ISM Podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Katie Fitzgerald, who is here at Yale working on a project called No Pure Lands, the Contemporary Buddhism of Tibetan Lay Women. Dr. Fitzgerald, who earned her PhD in Comparative Studies from The Ohio State University in 2020, is using ethnographic data that she collected in a rural area of Yushu in Qinghai province to consider how these particular women enact and embody a contemporary Buddhism. On top of this, she's teaching a class on Buddhism and hip-hop, and next spring she'll be teaching one on general Tibetan Buddhism. You can check out her recent scholarship in publications including Asian Ethnology, the Korea Journal of Buddhist Studies, and the journal Religions. Dr. Fitzgerald, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just jump right in. Give us a sense of how this became your book topic. Why lay women, why labor, and why the area of Tibet? Great. Thank you so much for this uh, question. Um, so I uh, uh, had originally started off my kind of graduate school tra- trajectory um, studying about Tibetan opera. Um, so my plan for my PhD was to do a kind of ethnographic study of Tibetan opera and specifically um, thinking about both Tibetan female representations within Tibetan opera. So how female characters of Tibetan opera are represented on stage and also um, potentially about women female artists um, and how their sort of careers grow as Tibetan opera performers. Um, so my master's work um, was on that that particular topic. But um, because of uh, kind of visa restrictions and access um, issues, it turned out that I wouldn't be able to return to, to, to Lhasa, the capital city of the Tibetan Autonomous Region, to perform this kind of fieldwork. So rather than do a textual project, so like moving away from ethnographic work, I decided to change locations. Um, so how I ended up in Qinghai was um, that the particular uh, monastery where I lived and, and conducted a lot of my um, research called Lothungargun, um, the lama there named Tenzin Nimarimboche, he was um, composing and um, staging some performances of um, secular songs and secular dances. Mm. So he, he was inviting um, members of the nomadic community to come to the monastery and perform these traditional Tibetan dances and songs. Um, which I found really fascinating, um, both because it kind of called upon this, my interest in, in Tibetan performance, and also because it was sort of breaching um, this sec- secular, sacred divide of the monastic institution as this kind of only um, sacred space, and then mm. the performance of you know music and dance there. Um, so when I went to the field, I went for the first time um, in 2016, I went for a month, um, but when I arrived there, I found out that they were no longer performing. So there had been a, a, a really massive earthquake in 2010 in Yushu. And after that happened, it just, um, the community didn't feel comfortable having these sort of celebratory dance and singing um, events mm-hmm. in the monastery because so many people were mourning the loss of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. So when I arrived there, I found out, okay, um, they aren't uh, performing these, you know, these songs and dances anymore. Um, 
But this community um, has a really vibrant female population who are really engaging actively with the monastery. So then I, I sort of um, switched my topic away from performances directly um, and more thinking about how women are performing religion. So how they are um, participating in ritual activities, how they are acting as um, religious educators in their homes, how they are enacting religion on a kind of domestic level. And that's what yeah, led me into this topic. That's so neat. I I have a follow-up question. It was interesting, this secular-sacred divide that was happening with these performances before the earthquake. Um, is it common for people to come and pray or worship or chant together at the monastery? So we think monasteries may be like only, no one's allowed in, et cetera, but it sounds like in these communities, at least in Qinghai, where you were, that there was some porousness. Yeah, absolutely. And when I, uh, I initially came to the field, I had the impression that there would be this very clear division between um, the monastic community and the lay community and monastics are monastics all the time and the laity are laity all the time. Um, but what I found was actually that it was much more complicated than that, um, which in and of, it, of itself was very interesting to me. So um, there are a number of different ways in which lay um, practitioners participate in the monastic community and monastic vows can be taken for different durations. So they can be taken as a child and then given back um, uh, when that child decides they no longer want to be monastic anymore. There's also um, a population of monastics who are still alive today who were um, forced to derobe during the Cultural Revolution and they were um, forced to marry and have children. But after the Cultural Revolution, when religious practice was sanctioned again, um, they came back to the monastery, but they brought with them their wives and children and they live in this sort of Again, um, porous space between monastic and laity and lay life. Um, and then there are also a, a large portion of the population who, when they become widows or widowers in their kind of old age, then they take on vows again, but they might still have children as well. And I should also mention that um, for a lot of nuns, they um, take monastic vows. They live for some portion of time in the nunnery, but oftentimes they're called upon to act as either caregivers to elderly parents or caregivers to young children in the home. So again, it's not this process through which they become a nun and then they're never taking part in domestic nomadic life again. Um, they might very well spend half of every year um, laboring in the home as a kind of domestic woman, um, but they're still wearing robes. They still have their shaved head. They're maintaining their vows. Um, so yeah, this line between the laity and the um, monastic population, I found to be way more complicated than I originally imagined. And also that we see in a lot of um, literature on, on Tibetan Buddhism. Oh yeah. That's so fascinating. So you spent quite a bit of time in Qinghai, one and a half years, right? Mm -hmm. Living amongst this community. Did you know that you were going to spend the entire time there? Was that sort of the plan when you got your funding heading out for this research? Um, yeah. So I went uh, for the first time in 2016. I just went for a month um, and I, uh, as a kind of scouting mission um, to see what was there, what would be possible to do, where I might be allowed to stay. Um, because again, as a woman, um, I... Um, imagined that it might be an issue for me to, for example, stay very close to or in a monastic space that I might need to kind of find a, a host family to live in a nomadic area. So I really wasn't sure when I when I first came um, and I approached the um, the Lama of um, Lulungargun and asked him, like, could I come here to, um, to live for a year? Uh, at the time, I had a, a Fulbright um, the IIE and it was for a year. So I said, you know, would it be okay for me to come here for a year? Um, and he said, yeah, 
Sure. <laughs> um, that'd be great. And um, so I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and I, I told him at the time that I was interested in, in sort of studying about women's um, religious practices. And he said, women might not want to talk to you mm-hmm. about religion um, mm-hmm. because he said they don't know that much about religion, number one. Um, okay. And number two, they are not used to kind of engaging in like interviews or, or dialogue with um, reporters or scholars. So they might not be comfortable talking to you, but you can do whatever you want. Uh-huh. You're welcome to come uh-huh. here. Um, so I said, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> um, and then I rented a little um, a hut kind of on the outskirts of the monastery. And then I started to, um, work in the monastic kitchen. Um, so I was cooking and cleaning, um, for the monastery and, um, that was a lot of work, um, but helped (laughs) me to, because that was the space that women were most present in, in the, in the monastery. Um, and also the, the monastic kitchen is a kind of central site of, um, politics and, um, gossip and sure. kind of local news. Sure. So yeah, that really helped me to kind of um, become more integrated into the community as well. So you would encounter both lay women and monastic women in this in this kitchen. Yes, definitely. Although the 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 place that I was staying was at the the, the monastic center, so mm-hmm. this was where the, the monks were living, and there was a nunnery that was right across um, a kind of valley. Okay. Um, and so the the those nuns would come for all of the ceremonies um, to the monastery to participate, and they would. Um, at times stay um, close by, but they were kind of less present female forces than the lay women. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Just to give our listeners a sense, when you're crossing this valley, about Mm -hmm. how long does that take and what does that look like? Um, Yeah, nowadays there's a road and, uh, well, it's a dirt road and it's very hard to travel on. Um, There's lots of big boulders and it's not so easy to drive on. Um, But uh, yeah, traditionally people would walk. It would take, I don't know, maybe two hours to walk, um, on horseback, maybe an hour. Um, but there's not so many horses left anymore because people have motorbikes and, um, and cars and, uh, not many nuns. I think only, I know, I knew one nun who drove, who had a car and she drove and she was like responsible for, um, buying the goods for the nunnery. So most women in the area still don't drive. So, um, yeah, I, I also, I bought like a old, junky car, Uh um, that would constantly break down. Um, and so one of the ways, again, that I was kind of able to connect with women was to offer to drive them places and, um, you know, or pick up items for them and, you know, help with kind of shopping and supplying for the nunnery. Right. uh, Okay. So that was sort of the way that you encountered these women logistically in terms of, you know, you were there for research. Did you simply allow yourself to just be present and have conversations or did you sometimes ask permission to record conversations? What does that look like? Um, yeah, in the in the very beginning when I first went, um, I had this idea that I wanted to study about kind of female transmission and didactic practices in the home and, and I don't know, mothers acting as kind of Buddhist teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first month when I was there, I kept getting kind of pulled away into conversations with these men. Um Interesting. The men had a lot more sort of social mobility and time and leisure and freedom to be able to, um, I don't know, say go out to a cafe and sit down and have this sort of kind of traditional interview style conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, So I began to sort of get pulled in that direction. I came back from the field from that initial visit and I talked to one of my mentors and and I said, you know, it seems like this would be like an easier path. And he was like, no, do not (laughs) just go with what is um, you know, easiest, like if you're interested in what women are doing, like work harder to find out, you know, what women's lives, um, uh, look like. And so when I came back, uh, from the field, I made the decision, um, that I would 
work alongside women. So for example, if I came as a guest into somebody's home, mm -hmm. uh, a woman who might have um, one to four husbands, um, parent, you know, in-laws that she's responsible to take care of, maybe upwards of six children. Um, I'm just like creating another burden for her. She has sure. to now serve me tea and like give me some special food. And um, and I don't eat meat, which is a bit of an issue. So, uh, you know, she has to like find vegetables and, you know, <laughs> kind of try to take care of me. So I'm really just creating a bit of a, a nuisance in these women's lives. So I decided early on that I would just like get up and work with women and just offer to whatever, take care of the babies, change uh -huh. the diapers, cook the meals, right? Work with, with women. Um, and this, this really helped to change the, the nature of the relationship. One, because I wasn't so much of a, a bother <laughs> um, if I'm coming into someone's home and saying, you know, here, let me help, let me um, work with you. And I took on a kind of, I don't know, apprentice woman role in, mm -hmm. in the lives of these women because nomadic work is very difficult and very complicated. So there are so many aspects of um, living in a, in a nomadic world that require like training. Um, mm. So you have to know how to dry dung. You have to be able to start fire um, fires and maintain fires that don't like allow, you know, just pile smoke into, into a home. You have to be able to cook um, on, on fire. You have to be able to cook certain kinds of foods. And, and you know, there's so much knowledge that you need in order to be a sort of competent woman in this context. So um, I asked women um, to sort of teach me how to do those things. And that helped to, I don't know, um, kind of change the power dynamic and also brought a lot of levity into our relationships because we could all laugh at how kind of incompetent I was at <laughs> being a proper a woman in this particular context. Right. So yeah, I spend a lot of my time working um, with women alongside women and just listening to what they had to say or, you know, the sort of gossip and um, ideas or the way that they prayed or the way that they um, maintained their altars. Mm. And then around um, nine months into that first year, I did my first formal interview. Okay. So wow. I spent a lot of time forming these relationships and making sure that women understood like what I was doing um, and um, what the purpose of my research was. And then um, women that I had very close relationships with, I asked them, hey, I'm going to like, I want to do an oral history mm. of you. I want to mm -hmm. ask questions about your um, childhood and, and your family and then your married life and your children. And I already knew most of the answers to the questions that I was asking them so sure. that I could sort of um, shape the conversation. Because also a lot of these women have experienced um, a lot of tragedy in their lives. Mm. Um, many of the women have lost children. Some of them have, you know, have had a complicated um romantic relationships. And so I wanted to make sure that anyone I was interviewing, I sort of already was sensitive to what was going on in their lives first sure. so that I wouldn't be asking them for the first time meeting them questions that would be, you know, sensitive. Yeah. Wow. So you've spoken a little to this idea of what it's like to be a woman here in this rural area. It sounds like it's pretty 24 hour kind of experience. I got to hear your recent lunchtime talk with the ISM. You were discussing a particular chapter in this book um, that focuses on this prayer called the Aspiration for Rebirth in Amitabha's Pure Land. You mentioned that uh, notably, this prayer is got a few ways that it talks about there being no women in the Pure Land. I'm curious whether or not you knew this prayer had this lines about women not existing in the Pure Land before you arrived, because I think you also mentioned that this is a really common prayer. This is recited both in the monastery, this is recited at home. Mm -hmm. um, so women are actually reciting this prayer all the time. 
Um, And yet it also has these lines. So we think, oh my gosh, that's an interesting dissonance or (laughs) is it? (laughs) So this, I didn't know going into the field that this was a, I didn't know this prayer at all when I um, first arrived. So shortly after I, um, I arrived in the field, I had the chance to um, attend a seven-day Amitabha prayer festival, which is held annually at the um, monastery. And um, I noticed right away, so I I was um, kind of following along with the chanting in um, the prayer book, and I noticed right away in one of the first um, few days, like, hmm, we were reciting this same prayer, like at the end of each prayer session. So it has a very distinctive melody. Um, so you're able to sort of, you know, recognize it amongst a, a liturgy of other prayers. Um, and I noticed right away that it said, there's no women, mm. that women are not um, present in the Pure Land. And so I started to sort of prod my female neighbors and mm. go like, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, expecting them to be a little indignant or, you know, at least have some of you like, yeah, you know, some dude wrote this a hundred years ago. So that's why it says that or something like that. But I, that really wasn't the attitude that I encountered. So that was what really interested me was like, yeah, how is it that women are participating so actively um, in the recitation of this particular prayer? They're understanding it, they're digesting it, they're um, reciting it with a lot of purpose and intention. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's a prayer that says, you know, is aspiring for a if not male, at least not female rebirth. Um, yeah, so that that prompted me to, to begin asking. So what kinds of questions did you ask and um, did those have to change? I, I think every time I talk about my research, it's basically just um, me uh, reiterating all of the sort of ethnographic mistakes that I <laughs> make and how I keep having to change the kinds of questions that I ask because they aren't the right kinds of questions. Um, so yeah, in the beginning, I um, was interested in this question of female purity and female exclusion in monastic spaces. So in this prayer, you know, this is one example, but other examples are um, in uh, another monastery that I um, worked in the, in the kitchen for uh, women are not allowed to kind of touch the main source of water in mm. the, in the kitchen. Um, and of course that I found this out because I went to go like get water out of it. They're like, Oh no, <laughs> don't touch that. Um, and then, and other examples are um, certain sacred mountains. Uh, women are not supposed to climb other sacred mountains. Women are not supposed to circumambulate. There are certain classes of deities that women are not supposed to interact with or propitiate in any sort of ways. Mm-hmm. So this, um, this kind of idea that women should be excluded from certain aspects of religious life came up again and again. And I always was trying to ask other women, like, why? <laughs> what is what is the deal? Like, what is it about women that makes us specifically excluded from, from these spaces? Um, and as I was asking them, I was sort of kind of helping to prompt them from a kind of Indic tantric purity, you know, is it because we menstruate? Is it because Mm -hmm. women give birth to children and there's all this gross uterine fluids or something like, Mm -hmm. is it about childbirth? Is it about sex? Is it about lust and female bodies being, I don't know, objects of lust. And they were always like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Like, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know why we're just not supposed to, to, to do that. And I would say, you know, is it about your period? They were going, I don't know, maybe like, yeah, periods are sort of gross. Menstruation <laughs> sort of gross. Like maybe that's a reason, but it wasn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't asking the question and them going, yes, that's the answer. They were thinking, right. well, this is the first time that I've been suggested that particular kind of answer. Right. Um, so this, yeah, made me pause and um, rethink the kinds of questions that I was Asking And one of the really interesting interactions that, that really shaped this switch in positionality for me um, was when I was asking a woman once about 
why women participate in such higher numbers in closed retreats in this particular area. So mm-hmm. um, in in Dukunkagyu tradition, there's something called a, a three-year, three-month um retreat. So you would go into a closed retreat um, for three years and three months and three weeks and three days. Mm. Um, And women, there are um, hardly any men performing this kind of closed retreat and a lot of women, especially nuns who are performing this. So I asked her once, like, why, why is it that women are doing this in higher numbers? And she said to me, um, women are trained from a young age to be able to endure hardships. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to work harder. They have a more dangerous life. Um, they're kind of confronted with the sufferings of samsara at a younger age than their male counterparts and in a kind of more drastic and more obvious way. So this does two things. One, it trains them to be more diligent religious laborers. And um, two, it turns them away from worldly pleasures sooner because they already see the suffering. They already see how... Um, painful it is to be alive in the mm-hmm. world at a young age and in such a kind of um, overwhelming fashion that they can develop this distaste for samsara um, much more strongly. So this really changed the way that I was thinking about the differences between male and female practice, not being about an outward like material nature of the body. Oh, there's menstruation. Oh, there's menopause. Oh, there's, um, you know, childbirth, but the kind of interior positionality that shapes women's approaches to religious life. Um, So then that prompted me to ask about the Pure Land again Mm -hmm. and why women um, wouldn't mind reciting a prayer over and over again, wishing for a non-female rebirth. And again, their their answers to me were sort of um, incredulous. Like, why would I want to be reborn as a woman Mm -hmm. if being a woman means more labor, more pain, more danger in the world, mm-hmm. wouldn't it make sense for me to aspire to, to a birth and to a place in which I don't have to worry about those things and can focus on kind of Dharma practice? Right, right, right. I'm wondering, it, uh, it strikes me almost as if purity, for example, like in regards to menstruation, mm-hmm. it, it takes on a kind of, and I'm wondering if this is right, because you're talking about a kind of like an interior rather than exterior idea of purity, but there's something functional about it. Mm -hmm. Like when you're menstruating or when you're giving birth to, I don't know, your third or fourth child, this is a, this is a a real obstacle Mm. (laughs) to your being able to just pop up and keep going. Although I know you've mentioned stories of of women who give birth and they have to go out into the field and milk the cow because the cow needs to be milked. So Mm -hmm. sort of the incredible, um, stamina of Mm. these women, it sounds to me like a very clear, understanding of how hard mm-hmm. all of that is mm-hmm. um, and what can kind of get in the way of getting to pray. Yeah. So it's almost, um, it is both the obstacle and the means by which they understand how to meet this very demanding uh, spiritual practice. Yeah, absolutely. And the the thing um, you, you kind of mentioned, the functionality of something like menstrual blood, for example, like in tantric practice, menstrual blood is kind of used as a symbol of something that is wholesale disgusting and disease ridden and Mm. um, really kind of horrifying that through the power of tantric meditation and ritual can be transformed into nectar that can be consumed and is just as bliss inducing as, I don't know, you know, the nectar from peaches or Mm. something. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really the power of the tantra that transforms this symbol of menstrual blood or potentially even real, you know, menstrual blood, but meant to kind of symbolize 
um, something that is disgusting and dirty and awful. But for women who like bleed, yeah. <laughs> um, who have, who menstruate, um, they deal with it all the time. It isn't something that is like horrifying and disgusting. Sure. Um, and also it can be, as you said, this kind of functional, it, it, it means something too, right? Um, yep. the, the color and the, the nature of your, of your blood, um, is a predictor of your health. It also, um, tells you whether or not you're pregnant. It tells you whether or not you've reached menopause. So for these women, this object of blood or, um, I would dare to say a number of other sort of objects, symbolic objects, metaphorical objects within the Tantra are operating on, as you mentioned, this kind of multiple levels. They understand what it is supposed to symbolize and how it is, you know, transformed within the visualizations, but they also understand it as this commonplace sort of pragmatic functional um, object themselves. Right. Oh, so it's so cool. So I'm wondering, how do you see your scholarship and your ethnographic research contributing to how the Western Academy is discussing these sorts of issues? So one of the kind of most frequent um, questions that I got, even, you know, in the field from especially monastic elites, but sometimes from women themselves is, mm -hmm. if you want to know about Buddhism, if you want to know about religion in contemporary Tibet, why are you talking to women? Women don't know anything. Women are the kind of least teachable, the most superstitious, the most illiterate population in, you know, contemporary Tibet. So why do you care what they're doing kind of from a religious standpoint? Um, and I was confronted with that viewpoint on the one hand. And on the other hand, the reality that monastic ceremonies are attended primarily by women, that women mm -hmm. are um, participating in closed retreats in higher numbers than their male counterparts, that women who are widowed are coming to live in the monastery in, in their old age in higher numbers than their male count counterparts, mm -hmm. that women are really participating um, not just kind of tangentially and like for the hell of it, right. Mm -hmm. For, for, mm -hmm. to have a nice, they're busy, right. <laughs> they have a lot, uh, to, yeah. they have a lot to do. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yet they are, are investing so much energy and time and labor into religious transformation, religious realization. So, um, that has prompted me, yeah, to kind of stake this claim that, um, we are, we are doing a disservice when we pretend as if contemporary Tibetan Buddhism is only happening in monasteries mm -hmm. or it's only happening in sort of philosophical debates amongst literate monastic elites. Mm -hmm. um, that looking at the majority of Buddhist practitioners should tell us something about um, should tell us something new and interesting and exciting about Buddhist practice. At the same time, um, I also sort of imagined for some brief moment that maybe Tibetan Buddhist lay women were like doing some, some version of Buddhism that was different. Mm -hmm. uh, they were doing their own sort of women's Buddhism. Sure. Um, but what I found was, no, they're doing exactly the same practices yeah. as, you know, um, monastics. They are really in many ways reiterating um, kind of philosophical standpoints and doctrinal standpoints on emptiness, on impermanence, on, you know, really important topics within um, Buddhist philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, they aren't like inventing their own version of Buddhism that is very different from, sure. from kind of monastic or historical, um, accounts of Buddhism. And yet still they're ignored, um, mm. in our, in our record of mm -hmm. what it is, what it means to be, to be a Buddhist. Um, so that's what kind of keeps prompting me again and again to return to these women and say, why 
are none of their voices being represented in, you know, the Western Academy or also in, you know, um, kind of monastic, I don't know, curriculum sure. uh, either when number one, they're the majority and number two, their views so nicely complement and also reiterate yeah. views about Buddhism. Right. And it seems in a, in a certain sense that this is a challenge to these ideas that I think happens, I think interreligiously, there's a mm -hmm. kind of, and it often kind of comes with the idea of the feminine um, being a kind of blind faith as opposed mm -hmm. to irrational, which is, takes on these more masculine, you know, um, uh, opposites, it seems to me. And um, it sounds like what I'm hearing from your work, well, it's challenging this idea of blind faith because these women are very like cogently aware and participating right. um, within the mainstream. Yeah. It's not that they're creating something so different. They're just kind of full participants mm -hmm. um, from their particular positionality, which involves a lot of work, et cetera, right. um, and all these things that doesn't allow them to get to go to retreats as often and, and things like that. And you're exactly like. right that this, uh, one of the chapters in my book deals specifically with blind faith as this kind of gendered mm. um, critique, wherein practices that are deemed superstitious um, and a kind of iterations of, of blind faith have this gendered nature. Sure. Um, so it's women's practices or practices that are important for um, the entire Buddhist community, like divination, like um, having the power to have premonitions, healing practices, um, and funerary practices get gendered and mm -hmm. identified as specifically women's practices, mm -hmm. and then critiqued as being blind, ignorant, um, illiterate, superstitious practices. So I'm curious, you have this particular scholarly intervention, which says, hey, look at these, these women are legitimate sort of sources of understanding contemporary Buddhist theologies. Mm -hmm. What might we take from your scholarship, I suppose, in terms of public discourse here in the U.S.? I'm curious, does it apply specifically in regards to these ideas of what we sometimes as Western women in all our multiple positionalities might be surprised? Oh my gosh, there's this prayer for the pure land. Mm. And these women say it and they have this really interesting way of <laughs> understanding purity is functional and, you know, and who, how they are women and their positionality. Does it challenge us here in the U.S.? Does it apply in any way? I'm just... Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's something that I think a lot about, especially in our sort of current, you know, political, cultural moment here in the U.S., um, wherein there's so much um, fear and also suspicion of kind of academic discourse or um, educated experts become sort of demonized as, um, I don't know, manipulators of the, the, the lay population. And for me, um, part of what is important about my work or the kind of uh, viewpoint that, that I am trying to put forth is the idea that there's something lost in translation between um, elite languages and lay languages and that um, this kind of divide, whether it is something that is kind of coming about um, naturally within a specific population, or if it's a kind of overlaid um, divide superimposed by academic categories, is not serving us well. And the kind of increased um, division between uh, our, our, say, our expert sources and our lay sources and the inability that we have to kind of bridge the divide and speak the same common language is creating a lot of um, social problems and also allowing um, outside kind of ideologues or uh, politicians or mm -hmm. um, leaders to utilize this division to 
manipulate the population to their own advantage. Um, so I, I would hope that in a broader sense that my work encourages us to both think conversationally mm-hmm. with uh, lay populations, whether that means on a kind of religious, you know, from a religious standpoint, lay religious practitioners, or it means laity in the sense of non-academic um, communities, the, sure. the, 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 the people who uh, we are sort of meant to serve and support as academics, um, that one, one speaking conversationally, having this kind of dialogic relationship and really taking seriously the points of view of lay populations, what mm-hmm. is important to them, how they are thinking about theologically or theoretically their own uh, lives. And then um, not only just like kind of paying lip service and saying like, you know, here's what this one, you know, person said, and that's it, but allowing those viewpoints to challenge and shape and transform and change the ways that we are theorizing in the academy and especially in the study of religion. That's great. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I often think of that idea of literacy. It's like a literacy problem. And by that, I don't mean, oh, everybody has to be an expert in Mm -hmm. everything, right? But it's about having the chance to have been exposed to ideas that then you are able to process and and own in a certain way. Yes. um, So that your conversations can be just, I don't know, more accessible, more informed. And, And I think, you know, one hopes in that way we can just understand each other a little bit better. But. Right, more human. Somehow I think academics are the like least literate among us <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> we sort of lack the ability to um, sometimes to translate um, our thoughts and ideas into a digestible format. We're sometimes more interested in thought experiments than we are in like real human beings whose mm. lives are affected by ideas. So um, yeah, I think I think you're right. It's about literacy. It's about you know, changing the conversation, also changing the language that we use, but also I think just valuing the viewpoints of lay populations in a more sort of, um, um, in a more tangible way, right? Not just as a way of saying like, aha, there are these other people who I had a nice conversation with and now I'm just going to go maintain the same views that I had before, but really allowing the kind of, um, the ideas that you encounter in your research to also change your research and change you as a scholar, change right. you as a teacher uh, as well. Being curious enough about those people, which I sounds like ex- is exactly what um, your project does. I'm excited for your book. Thank you very much. <laughs> I thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we can continue to have awesome conversations this year. Great. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Dr. Dr. Fitzgerald. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.